Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is entitled, I Must Keep Going, Lent's Unfinished Business, and is based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, March the 4th, 2007, the second Sunday in Lent. Last summer, as I walked down University Avenue in Palo Alto, I noticed the t-shirt of a woman who passed me on the sidewalk. Bold letters across the front of her shirt proclaimed, I've got issues. I laughed to myself at how her message captured the spirit of our therapeutic age, perhaps simultaneously mocking it, and at the, at the exhibitionist verve of announcing so publicly the stuff of such privacy. We live in an age, after all, when Dr. Phil makes mega-millions peddling psycho-voyeurism as therapy, and when the media exploits Anna Nicole Smith's tragic death just as it did her troubled life. The more I thought about the three words on that t-shirt, the more I'm convinced that they summarize the Lenten message. Since the fourth century, the followers of Jesus have given themselves to sustained reflection on their issues at this time of the liturgical year. And so we've set aside the 40 weekdays before Easter to contemplate our mortality, our faults, and our failures. Unfortunately, in the popular imagination, and undoubtedly in some people's practices, Lent has earned a reputation for moralistic, morbid, and gloomy self-hatred. I'm such a worm. On Ash Wednesday, some believers smeared ashes on their forehead. Others fast, or at least try to. Still others muster the gumption to perform acts of mercy, abstinence, or contrition. And hey, if I'm going to give up chocolate or alcohol for six weeks, better to party hard on Fat Tuesday before the beginning of Lent on Ash Wednesday. Instead of a prolonged season of misanthropy, I've come to understand Lent as a season of liberation. At their best, our outward Lenten acts bespeak an inward disposition. In the language of the sacraments, they're visible signs of an invisible grace. In a culture that celebrates indulgence, entitlement, winning at any cost, hubris, and bravado, Lent signals a wonderfully outrageous and countercultural enactment of loss and humility. Lent frees us to unmask the many faces of denial about our stuff. We're encouraged to befriend our brokenness, acknowledge that not all is well with our souls, and identify with the hurt of so many people in our world. During Lent, we exchange the oppressive fantasy of perfection for the liberating reality of fallibility. And, in a miracle of grace, we discover that there are consolations in imperfections. Finally, Lent reminds us that sooner or later the dance will end. We read in Genesis 3.19, Remember, O man, that you are but dust and to dust you will return. Consider the lives of two deeply flawed saints 
in this week's liturgical readings. Hearing the call of God at the age of 75, Abraham left all that he knew and loved in Ur of the Chaldees, all that was familiar and friendly. He journeyed from what is now Nazaria, Iraq, in ignorance, according to Hebrews 11.8, not knowing where he was going. And so later writers described him as a wandering Aramean, Deuteronomy 26, verse 5. Famine drove him down to Egypt, where lies and deceit saved not only his marriage, but probably his life. Upon returning from Egypt, family quarrels erupted over money, inheritance, and children. There followed the drama of rescuing his nephew Lot. Infertility led to sex for hire with Hagar, Sarah's Egyptian maidservant. Even Abraham's religious rituals were marked by what we read in Genesis 15, verse 12, as a thick and dreadful darkness. After Hagar was banished and Sarah died, Abraham took a third wife, Keturah, with whom he fathered six more children. Then Abraham died, just like each one of us will. And the scriptures note that he died without having received a promise. Hebrews 11:13. In the words of Edwin Murr's poem Abraham, quote, "The promise had not come, and he left his bones far from his father's house in alien Canaan." End quote. With the stuff of his human life unfinished and the divine promises unfulfilled, Abraham became the father of us all in more ways than one. Romans 4.16. And Paul, writing to his friends in Philippi from a Roman jail, Paul admits that self-confident religious perfectionism once ruled his life. Eventually, he understood his zeal for a faultless life for what it was, an exercise in pride, futility, and delusion. Later, he reversed course, repudiated his quest for religion based upon insider ethnicity, rule-keeping, sanctimony, and the fantasy of perfection, and forfeited his self-confidence. Rather, he wrote the Philippians, he wanted to know Christ, the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings. But his actual experience fell far short of this new longing we read in Philippians 3, 12, and 13, Not that I have already obtained all this, or have already been made perfect, but I press on, even though I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. Especially what he calls his lowly body had to wait for a full and final transformation. Abraham and Paul remind me that while some of my faults failures, and brokenness, my issues, if you will, might enjoy limited healing in this life. I will carry much, if not most of them, all the way to the grave. The desert monastics of 4th century Egypt recommended the sage advice of St. Anthony the Great, who lived from 251 to 356, that we should, in Anthony's words, expect trials until your last breath. 
or in modern parlance, until the day you die, you will have issues. This diagnosis does not consign us to chronic pessimism, but rather to human realism, into our future eschatological hope. For Lent is only a penultimate stop on the journey. Easter resurrection is our ultimate destination. Although he died far from his father's house in alien Canaan, Abraham persisted in faith like a resident alien in a foreign country. His journey's end was not an earthly destination, we read, but a city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. He was longing for a better country, a heavenly one, according to Hebrews 11, verses 10 and 16. Reflecting upon his limited spiritual progress and his certain physical deterioration, Paul wrote that our final citizenship is in heaven, Philippians 3.20. And finally, in the gospel for this week, Jesus assured his followers that no death threats from Herod and Tippus would shorten his work. He would preach, teach, and heal, and heal until Gethsemane and then Golgotha. We read in Luke 13, 31 and 33, In any case, I must keep going today and tomorrow and the next day. The Via Dolorosa is not an easy journey, but its destination is sure. So this Lenten season, let us with Abraham, Paul, and Jesus himself keep going today, tomorrow, and the next day until we reach Easter. And now for further reflection. What does Donald McCullough mean when he writes of the consolations of imperfections? Number two, what might it mean to live and die without having received the promise? Number three, why do you think so many people watch Dr. Phil? Number four, meditate on the implications that Abraham journeyed not knowing where he was going, Hebrews 11, verse 8. And finally, for further reading, you might want to see Brennan Manning's wonderful book, The Ragamuffin Gospel. For books this week, I review a book by Margaret Bullock Jonas, the title of which is Holy Hunger, A Woman's Journey from Food Addiction to Spiritual Fulfillment. New York, Knopf, 1998, and Vintage Books, The Year 2000, 255 pages. I read Holy Hunger because I have a friend who was struggling with an eating disorder, and because I had the pleasure of meeting Bullet Jonas at a conference. I was glad I did. Bullet Jonas is an Episcopal priest, writer, environmental activist, retreat leader, Harvard PhD, marathon runner, and spiritual director. She was also a food addict who writes to share the lessons she learned about compulsive overeating.
Bullet Jonas began binge eating in the 10th grade. By the time she was 30, food controlled her body, mind, and spirit. In this book, she describes her late-night forays to the grocery store where she would furtively buy what she calls her drug of choice. Sometimes she would inhale an entire box of donuts in the car. Other times she would wait until she returned home to consume an entire pie at her kitchen counter. In one four-day period, she gained 11 pounds. On another occasion, she didn't eat anything for 10 days. In one of many turning points, the pleasant lies told at the funeral of a colleague who had committed suicide outraged her. How could the family lie so badly about what had happened, she wondered. And then the penny dropped. Much of Bullet Jonas's book is about the unearthing of her family archaeology, its enormous wealth but deep dysfunction. Her grandparents' home was lined with paintings of Picasso, Matisse, and Gauguin. Boarding school in Switzerland and Maryland was followed by Russian studies at Stanford and then Harvard. Her parents were polar opposites. Her mother was taciturn, private, and emotionally distant. Her father, a Harvard professor, was a volatile and verbal alcoholic who loved to sail his boat directly into a storm. In between were the people-pleasing, the peacemaking, the perfectionisms that were pleas for love, and the emotional starvation, not for food, but for human affirmation. And over it all was an unspoken compact of silence. As Bullet Jonas writes, we didn't do feelings in my house. All the wealth couldn't cloak the deep emotional, psychological, and, spirit, and spiritual poverty of everyone involved. Eventually, Bullet Jonas connected with Overeaters Anonymous and adult children of alcoholics. She took an acting class, enrolled in Buddhist meditation, met the man she eventually married, and even rejoined her church community, all of which helped her to listen to her own voices to discover her personal identity apart from her family, and to begin writing a new story. In the end, she construes her story as a memoir about desire, what she calls, quote, the desire beyond all desire, end quote. Her words reminded me of the opening sentences of Augustine's Confessions, that God has made us for thyself, and our hearts are restless, until they find their rest in thee. There are no victims or villains in this book, no shaming and blaming, either of herself or of her family. Rather, Bullet Jonas has written a beautiful story of redemption that combines courageous truth-telling with tender compassion. I hope she'll write a sequel. Margaret Bullet Jonas Holy Hunger, A Woman's Journey from Food Addiction to Spiritual Fulfillment. For film this week, I review a Japanese movie called Who's Camus Anyway? from the year 2005. For their class project, 
A group of students makes a film with the title, The Bored Murderer. When the male lead falls ill, that role falls to the very weird Takeda. At first, this meets with enthusiastic approval. But when he plays his role a little too intensely, his classmates begin to wonder if he's sane or not. Before too long, we realize that this film is not only about the student film and all its problems of story, budget, cast, and sights, but about their very own lives and how their film roles in real lives merge. Goofing around with their handheld videos and camera phones, they film each other making the film. And as you might imagine, problems abound in their personal lives even more than with their film project. The girlfriend of the director, Naoki, is badly codependent and tried to commit suicide. Naoki sleeps around. Nakajo, a famous film professor, has quit working, is lonely for his deceased wife, and is obsessed with a gorgeous student. The assistant director, Kyoko, breaks down in tears. In this film about filmmaking, life imitates art. Who's Camus, anyway, won Best Film Award at the 2005 Tokyo International Film Festival? In Japanese, with English subtitles. Who's Camus, anyway, from the year 2005? And finally this week, for poetry, we've posted the poem, The Good Man in Hell by the Scottish poet Edwin Murr, who lived from 1887 to 1959. The Good Man in Hell. If a good man were ever housed in hell by needful error of the qualities, perhaps to prove the rule or shame the devil, or speak the truth only a stranger sees, would he, surrendering quick to obvious hate, fill half eternity with cries and tears, or watch beside hell's little wicket gate in patience for the first 10,000 years, feeling the curse climb slowly to his throat that, uttered, dooms him to rescindless ill, forcing his praying tongue to run by rote, eternity entire before him still? Would he at last, grown faithful in his station, kindle a little hope in hopeless hell, and so among the damned doubts of damnation, since here someone could live and live well? One doubt of evil would bring down such a grace, open such a gate, and Eden could enter in. Hell be a place like any other place, in love, in hate, in life, in death, begin. Edwin Murr, The Good Man in Hell. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, March 4th, 2007, the second Sunday in Lent. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.